When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The reality is there are a lot of things that we're already doing without realizing it that are our specialty, you know, where we're delivering a really specific benefit. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Today we're talking with my friend Sally Hogshead. You should listen to this episode if you wanna learn why standing out is actually your greatest competitive advantage, how to find your particular strengths and use them for maximum leverage in your career. And she's going to dismantle Jason and myself after we've taken her fascination test to see how we stack up and what we can leverage and how you can do the same with what applies to your particular situation, lifestyle, and career. So enjoy this one with Sally Hogshead. And by the way, if you're new to the show, we'd love to send you some top episodes and the AOC toolbox. That's where we discuss things like reading body language and nonverbal communication, negotiation techniques, networking, mentorship, influence, persuasion tactics, and basically everything else that we teach here at AOC. In the U.S., just text CHARMED to 33444. That's C-H-A-R-M-E-D to 33444. Everywhere else, go to theartofcharm.com. Also at theartofcharm.com slash podcast, you can find the full show notes for this and all previous episodes of the show. All right, here's Sally Hogshead. First of all, you became one of the top advertising professionals by age 24. How does that even work? I don't think I was good at anything at age 24. Well, it helps to have a very specific idea of what you want to be able to do and then do it differently than everybody else. Like I say, different is better than better. So I didn't focus on being better. I focused on being different. When did you start that process? Because I'm thinking you don't just go, oh, I got my first job. I'm 22. Let me just be awesome at this and different. Did you think when you were 15, 14, whatever, even younger, I'm really good at writing and I'm good at all these different things. What profession will be suitable for me? Because I was still dilly-dallying with that decision when I was probably 27. Well, one of the things I noticed about people who are most successful, you know, the high performers, especially at a young age, that they're very polarizing in the way they find their first job. And a lot of companies say, you're absolutely not right for this position. And it's because they're definitively not right for a lot of positions that they are extraordinary in other positions. So when I first started out in advertising, it's very creative. You create what's called a portfolio. And for the first three to six months, I was unemployed. I mean, I was literally ready to go start flipping burgers because people were saying, no, the kind of work you do isn't right for us. But then when I got a job, it was with an agency named Widening Kennedy, and I was working on the Nike account. So my very first job was Just Do It. My next job, I was working on BMW, Coca-Cola. And then I went on to start my own agency where I was working on Target and Godiva and Harry Winston. So here's the key. It's good to be better than the other people who are in your profession. It's good to be better, but it's better to be different. And so one of the keys that we're going to be talking about today in our conversation is how do you identify the ways in which you are different than other people so that you can position yourself to be a high performer and to not be a commodity, you know, so that you can charge more and you can be more in demand. Why did you decide to be different in the first place? How did you originally spot that advantage? <laughs> well, I got that advantage when I was on the playground with the last name Hogshead, and I was getting beaten up with sticks and stones. Yeah, no kidding. It's easy to have an unconventional point of view when the name on your birth certificate is something that people make fun of. And even today, when I make a reservation in a restaurant, maitre d's think it's a joke, so they erase my reservation. My mom told me something really different. She told me something, a great piece of coaching at an early age. My mom, Mrs. Hogshead, she said, it's the thing about our name that's different that will one day make you love it. It was from that very early lesson that I started realizing, you know, like we have to be able to stand out in a crowded marketplace. People are distracted. They don't want the same old, same old. And the more that you are replicable, the more that you can be replaced by somebody else, the more vulnerable you are, because then you have to start lowering your prices. Think of it like the difference between pistachio and vanilla. Pistachio has this hardcore loyal base of fans, whereas vanilla is the lowest common denominator. So the key is how do you identify the specific way in which you're different? And that's where I drew upon my advertising background because brands have to be able to stand out instantly in that nine-second attention span so that they can make an immediate first impression. And I think that's a key to the art of charm. 
to know the way in which people are going to be most impressed and influenced by you. So you never changed your name because you realize there's an advantage there, even if sometimes the disadvantage is you can't get a reservation at a restaurant. Yeah, absolutely. Look, if you're trying to appeal to everybody, you're not going to appeal to anybody. If you're not turning off part of your audience, then you're not going to be fascinating and you're not going to be memorable. And when I look back on my clients, like one of my favorite clients was Jägermeister. And the whole key about Jägermeister is... It's disgusting. Oh, it's absolutely disgusting. (laughs) That's the key. Yeah, I worked with them for years as their brand leader. And what we found in our research was the less you like the taste of Jägermeister, the more likely you are to drink it. So the people who hate Jägermeister drink it more than the people who actually like the taste of Jägermeister. And the reason is because Jägermeister isn't trying to offer a delicious taste or lower price or convenient service. Jägermeister is competing specifically because it offers a toxic experience. And so what happens is people, we we said to people, um, we went and watched how they were behaving. So let me ask you a question. What day of the week are you most likely to drink Jägermeister? Uh, It's going to be the weekend, I would imagine. It's going to be a sad weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Friday or Saturday. What time of day do most people drink Jägermeister? Evening. Yes. I would imagine. And early morning. So yes, you're going to drink (laughs) Jägermeister on Friday or Saturday, and you're going to drink it probably like 11 p.m. to 5 a.m. When we went in and watched people, they had very, very specific and predictable patterns. A group of people approaches the bar. Somebody says, hey, guys, let's do a round of Jägermeister shots. And everybody says, no. And then all of a sudden, that crazy button in their brain says, yes. And so the bartender comes over, brings them the platter of shots. Everybody looks at it, clenches, knowing that it's going to taste like kerosene. They pound the shot. They put the glass down. And they grimace. But then they look at each other. And they're doing fist bumps because, yeah, we just did it. You know, like there's this sort of bonding ritual around how horrible Jägermeister tastes. So the lesson to take away from that is the way that the most loved and admired brands succeed is not by trying to be perfect for everyone, but by being extraordinary for exactly the right audience. And that's something that we can take away for ourselves. You're not perfect for everything and you shouldn't try to be. If you try to be good at everything, then you're good at nothing. So the whole point is how can you find your own specialty? Right, and Jägermeister really nails it with that. Yeah, the time you drink Jägermeister is a direct result of the time you run out of literally everything else in the house after the liquor stores close. Should I have the battery acid drained from my car or <laughs> should I do a shot? And I, here's an interesting point. We found that in our research that the biggest problem that Jägermeister has is that people age out of the brand before their legal drinking age. So 21-year-olds are like, oh, that's so high school. But the parallel that we can apply to this is not that you should taste like battery acid. The key is if you don't have a specialty in your career, people are going to tune you out. So if you're detail-oriented, be really, really good at offering details and position yourself. Look for opportunities to deliver more details and to attract the kind of coworkers or clients or customers who are going to hire you because of details. On the other hand, if you're a big picture thinker, if you're a visionary, don't focus on details. Don't promise details. Details. Don't put yourself in a position where you have a massive competitive disadvantage by being assigned to be accountable for details because you're never going to succeed in that way. That's what I built this system around. The fascination system is how do you identify what makes you different so you can do more of what you're already doing right? I like the book, Fascinate, How to Make Your Brand Impossible to Resist. And I want to make sure that people realize, like, look, this isn't about your small business if you don't have one. Keep listening because it's about people. It's about human skills. It's about a few different sort of buckets that this could be put in, and almost the last of which, for the purposes of the show, should be business. I see why you do it that way, because businesses hire keynote speakers, but the stuff applies to everyone. It's not just like, oh, I don't have a business. Click, what's the next episode of the show? I think it makes sense the way that you position the brand. However, I think it applies to everything, and you obviously know that, or you wouldn't have agreed to come on here in the first place. Yeah, I think that's a really excellent point. And also, it's not just for work. If you're going to make a first impression in your life, if you're going to go on a first date, if you're in a religious organization and you have a message that you think matters in any area, look, people want you to cut to the chase, get to the bottom line. And if you can't earn their attention in the first few seconds, then as far as they're concerned, you're just taking up space. How did you make this test? How did you develop all this? For the first decade of my career, when I was working on advertising, what I learned is that every brand has a choice. You can either have the biggest budget or you can be the most fascinating. In other words, if you have more money than everybody else, you can just afford to have a ton of commercials. And what I saw was there's a parallel between that and us as personalities, personal brands that need to walk and talk and attract attention and keep attention and get our messages out there. If you're not the most famous, if you're not the best funded, if you're not the most 
well-known and well-respected already, then you have to compete in a different area, which is how do you fascinate people so that they focus on what you're saying, they take action on it, and they remember it and repeat it. So let's say you're going on a date. If you blend into everybody else in the online dating environment, people are just going to click past your profile. And it's the exact same thing if you're in a business, if you're in a business presentation. If you keep raising your hand and you're not delivering substantive value, then people kind of tune you out. They put you in their mental spam filter. It's kind of like you become human spam. And so once I realized that in order for any of us to take the messages, the ideas that we believe in and have them count in the world, then we need to understand how we can fascinate. Fascination is a neurological state of intense focus. So when people are fascinated by you, they're just thinking about you, your message, how you're communicating. Neurologically, the brain responds when you are fascinated by a TV show or a person or a concept, your brain looks like it's falling in love, like it's infatuated. It lights up. I took what I had learned about branding about 10 years ago. I began shifting over to studying people. And what I found is if you can measure how other people see you at your best, in other words, measure how your listener is most likely to be attracted to you or impressed by you, that's incredibly valuable information. Have you ever done a test, you know, like a traditional personality test? Yeah, like Myers-Briggs or whatever. Sure, I, I did it twice and I came up with different results several years apart. Those are great tests. They're built on psychology and that's an important thing for you to know. What I discovered though is those assessments are all built on how you see the world. So imagine it's kind of looking out of your eyes out at the world. Right, it's not how other people see you. It's not how the world sees you. So if we take the same type of world-class principles, the best practices that high-end brands use, it's a focus group. So imagine if I could assemble a focus group and ask them, how do you see this person? How do you see Jordan? Or how do you see Alice? And then give me some adjective to describe how you see them at their best. If we can give people that information, it becomes really easy to position yourself even when the market gets really crowded. So that's how I created the assessment. It took 10 years. I had an amazing team. We've measured 1 million people now. And what we found is there are very distinct hidden patterns in your communication that you don't even realize. But once you know them, it's a huge competitive advantage. So let's talk about the sort of ADD world that we live in. Do you have some specific threats to uh, to standing out that you can outline here? Because it seems like with all of the influx of info, I can barely pay attention to things that are actually important because there are so many things that aren't. I mean, we talk about this all the time, just entrepreneurs, business people in general, how do we focus on what's important? How do we stay focused on what's important? How do we cut out noise? And everybody's like, cut out social media, don't do this, don't do that. What are we looking at? What are we up against and how do we fix it? That's such an important question. We've all heard the statistics about attention span. The average attention span used to be 20 minutes long. When human beings worked on the farm, we didn't need to have a short attention span because we weren't bouncing from thing to thing to thing. It's not like you were going to spend nine seconds on the rooster and nine seconds on plowing. You needed a long attention span so you could stay engaged and focused. But with the rise of a lot of interruptions, that attention span's gotten shorter. And some people say eight seconds, people say nine, it's the attention span of a goldfish. So what we found was as people become more distracted, it becomes more important for you to have a shortcut so that you can earn those first few seconds of their attention by immediately adding value, capturing their attention, captivating them, fascinating them so that they continue to stay engaged listening to what you're saying. Otherwise, they just tune you out. So distraction is the first problem. The second problem is competition. Everyone's getting better. And the problem is, whether it's selling a product or meeting people in a, at a networking event or even going out with somebody new that you haven't met before, if you're only 0.06% better than everybody else, then you're going to lose that competitive game. I mean, that's kind of a hamster wheel to live on. So it's not enough to be the best if nobody notices or cares. So this is a problem that we're facing. I'm a creative person. I love coming up with ideas, but it doesn't matter if I have a world-changing idea if nobody notices or cares or listens or take action. If I can't sell my ideas, I may as well have never had those ideas in the first place. The third threat is commoditization. And that's not a word that we think about a lot applied to people. A commodity would be a product that's interchangeable with any other product like salt or water or steel. But what we found is if you can differentiate yourself in a really effective way, you can earn up to four times more than somebody who has your same level of skill or experience. And so there are specific patterns that these high earners have in common. And once you understand what those patterns are, then you can replicate them. 
Speaking of standing out, I read that you lived with an African tribe inside a goat dung hut during college, which brings up two questions. Where the hell did you go to college? Well, actually, my dorm room was probably still dirtier than that, but... <laughs> Maybe a little less crowded and you probably didn't have freshly killed chickens around on the floor, but yeah, I could imagine. No, I had worse things on the floor, but you must have stood out a lot. As a white lady in Africa with an African tribe inside a goat dung hut, I mean, you must have gotten really used to some unusual attention there, I, I would think. Yes, I went to Duke University and a lot of my friends did summers abroad, and I decided that I didn't know the word differentiate at the time, but if you have experiences that are same as everybody else, it's really hard for you to learn how you can set yourself apart because you're just doing the same treadmill of activities as everyone else. So I decided I wanted to go to the most obscure place I could find. So I went to the Office of International Studies and I said, send me to the one place that nobody else goes to. And it was the University of Nairobi. And so I went out on this um, incredibly remote area that was miles and miles away from civilization, living with this African tribe. And I was the first white woman they'd ever seen. I had a camera with me. They had never seen flash photography. I had a CD player. They had never heard Western music. And so what I got out of that experience is that if people aren't empowered to see themselves through education, to understand how they can rise, then they're never going to reach their potential. And that's why it's so important for all of us to, first of all, have experiences that nobody else has so that we can see the world more clearly, but also for us to understand we got to constantly be feeding ourselves with new ways to rise within an organization. And I don't mean that in a competitive way. I mean, for us to reach our maximum potential, we have to be feeding our brains and pushing ourselves and challenging ourselves to not just sit on the couch and watch the same shows as everyone else. This is something that I think I accidentally discovered early on with study abroad in Germany and then going to places like Panama and Ukraine and Mexico. I started to differentiate myself because when I went to Germany, I thought, oh, this is really cool. And it was such a massive advantage. I did try to get more and more obscure. That's why several years ago, I went to North Korea and then I went back. It's so different. Every time you do something so radically different from what other people are doing, you start to think a little bit differently. Like it pokes a little tiny hole in the cardboard box that you might live in that lets like this little ray of light come through. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. It's kind of like Jägermeister experiences, <laughs> not toxic experiences, but how do you find things that so distinctly stand out? Because that's part of the key of being a great conversationalist or being somebody that has a lot of layers so that you can not just attract people, but significantly contribute new thoughts and ideas and emotions to what they're thinking and feeling. I mean, that's totally fascinating. So that you're not just a two-dimensional cardboard cutout. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data. And a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. 
Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash charm. Just go to Indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Since you see things with that different little ray of light coming through the box to beat the uh, metaphor to death, you can start to put connections together that other people will never see and that you wouldn't have seen but for those experiences. And that can be a huge advantage, or at least it's a real advantage for somebody like me who goes, crap, I'm not the smartest person in the room, I'm not the quickest on my toes here, I'm probably not necessarily gonna be able to outwork these other people working 20 hours a day, what's my competitive advantage? You gain a competitive advantage that other people can't get just by going, this weekend I'm gonna study some travel stuff about dung huts, right? They can't go get that same experience easily enough to grab a hold of your competitive advantage. You know, what I love about you described about that is that obscure experiences can help boost your competitive advantage. And when we talk about competitive advantage, I think for both of us, we're not talking about kind of battling it out, duking it out with friends or coworkers. We're really talking about how do you add such significant value that you get to do more of what you love. If you're contributing such a specific benefit that other people can't match you in that one particular area. That's how you're going to have more choices, more options, earn more, do more, have a life that's more significant because people are going to listen and take action on what you say. It doesn't matter having a great message if nobody's listening. It doesn't matter if you're doing something that's significant if it doesn't cause anybody else to take action. And so that's really the point here of this whole concept of fascination. How do you draw people in? That's actually what fascination means. It's one of the oldest words in written language. It's ancient Latin. And the word fascination is originally fascinare. Fascinare. This is what sort of started me on this whole journey of studying this over the last 10 years. The word fascinare originally meant to bewitch or hold captive so your listener is powerless to resist. In other words, if you look it up in Webster's Dictionary, the current definition of it is to spellbind or bewitch, to hypnotize like a snake charmer. And that's a really cool concept if you think about that. You know, what is the greatest way to earn someone's and keep someone's attention in a meaningful way? It's almost like you're holding them captive. If you could give a speech or a presentation or introduce yourself and you could hold your listener captive, almost spellbinding them, bewitching them, you can have a much greater connection because they're falling in love with you in a sense. You wrote on your website, you have this what Sally believes section and one of the bullets is in a competitive environment, the most fascinating option always wins. That's kind of a, a head nod to the competitive advantage thing that we were just discussing as well, is that I beat this into the, the listener a lot here because it's probably one of the chief realizations of my whole life, but trying to play and beat people at their own game is always tough. And when it comes to getting a job or being inside your organization, it's always, always harder to play by everyone else's rules and with everyone else's qualifications. So that's why we're beating this uh, concept up a little bit because I really think it's massively, massively important. And I think that it's a great advantage for younger people as well going into an industry, these emails we get for Fan Mail Friday, things like, I'm so young compared to everyone here, how am I gonna add value? And the answer is not get five years of experience in the next one year so that everyone thinks you're a prodigy. The answer is, do and take all the weird stuff that you've done in your life or will do and somehow funnel that into giving value because otherwise you're just the new guy or gal. 
you said it beautifully. There's this whole culture and work that's kind of risen up since the mid 80s about find your strengths. And the problem with strengths is it puts you in a direct competitive situation with other people where you're trying to outdo them at their own game, like you just said. So instead of focusing on your strengths, the way in which you are incrementally better than other people, find the ways in which you're different. When you can hone in on that, that's what we discovered about the high performers. In the million people that we've measured inside of companies like Twitter and Porsche, what we learned is the people who are producing the most, they weren't necessarily more senior. They weren't more experienced. They didn't necessarily have better skills. What they did have is a specialty. For example, like I was describing earlier, if they had a specialty in being detail-oriented, they really doubled down on that. My specialty is being passionate and being creative. So when I work with a client, if I go into the situation thinking, well, this client wants me to be really consistent and predictable and follow a script, then I'm not going to be successful. I'm probably going to have a huge disadvantage over other people. I'm not going to make a good impression. I'm going to be totally bummed out. You know, it's going to take a huge amount of energy from me. It's going to be really exhausting in terms of my intellectual and emotional energy. So I only work with people who are looking for exactly what I deliver. And within companies, within any type of organization, the same is true for all of us. We each have a specialty that's built in, just like great brands do. And the key is just to be able to identify that. That's the core area of what I've been studying over the, this time of looking at fascination. How do we make that into a science or the art and science so that people understand exactly what they already do best, and then they just double down on that? Right, precisely. And I think you even say this in your bullets, the greatest value you can add is to become more of yourself. And that's kind of a relief to people who are going, oh my gosh, and having that imposter syndrome. It's almost the cure to imposter syndrome, right? Well, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm not the smartest one who's here and I can't outwork these people and they're all more intelligent and they all have more experience. It doesn't matter. You just have to be more of yourself. That's why you got selected in the first place. One of the things that people do that's a huge mistake is we try to water ourselves down so that we can fit in. And that's a natural response. It's easy to feel self-conscious or even feel insecure especially when we're in those situations where we got to win the moment, the moment when you walk into the room at a really important meeting or the moment when you got to have a difficult discussion with somebody in your family or one of your buddies. The problem is that we water ourselves down. Not only are we cheating other people of the chance to see the best of us, to learn from us and be inspired by us, but we're also far less likely to be remembered. One of the things that we saw in our research is you don't have to change who you are. You have to become more of who you are. And so if you think about that to yourself, who are you? Who are you at your core? And then how do you become more of who you are? People are 200% more confident when they understand who they are, when they identify who they are, and then they just stay on that track. But you probably feel the same way. Haven't you ever gone into some sort of a conversation where you really wanted to make a good impression or you really wanted to have a good outcome and you felt insecure, so you kind of fumbled? Do you know what I mean? Sure, of course. Yeah, everyone's had that experience. Everyone, for sure. Yeah, it's a terrible feeling. When you don't feel confident physiologically, a lot of things are going on with your body. And one of the things that happens is you get a blast of stress hormone. Your voice changes. Your voice becomes drier. It becomes tinnier. When you don't feel confident physiologically, your listener feels less confident in you. Their stomach clenches. They don't realize consciously that it's happening, but they want to back away. They feel awkward, so they try to shut it down. They're feeling awkward for you because they're kind of mirroring your response. And that's what happens when we're having a conversation and all of a sudden the person that we're talking to, they pick up their iPhone and they, they're they obviously tuning you out or they're disagreeing with what you're saying. Have you ever had that moment? You're trying so hard to kind of say the right thing and do the right thing. And then all of a sudden, you, like you get terrible body language signals or you get exactly the wrong answer. You know, your brain goes into high alert. You know that feeling? Right, like, oh, God, plan B right now. What is it? Right, and then you're kind of scrambling, and, you know, people pick up on that. So the key is, how are you most likely to make the best impression and add the most value and create a connection, not just kill time with fumbling your way through the conversation, but come to it with that feeling of being confident and in the flow? Right. We all know this feeling of being confident. Do you have those situations when you're working and it's like time flies and you are so in the zone? You know, it's like Michael Jordan soaring towards the basket. You're just like, man, I kick ass. Do you know what I'm talking about, that feeling? Well, yeah, I mean, the flow state type deal. Yeah, I mean, almost every day, pretty much every day. Yeah, when we tracked how fascinated people are in their work, in other words, how often they get in that flow state with their revenue, the more often you're fascinated in your work, 
there's a direct rise with your income. So it's really important for you to know how to get into that flow state, to have that sense of confidence, whether you're sitting there working on a project by yourself or you're having a conversation with somebody in the cubicle next to you, or you're doing a big presentation because it's going to have a direct correlation to how successful you are and how impressive and influential you are. Especially because if we don't know our own value, nobody else can. And so, of course, we can't demonstrate it. It sort of seems like a cycle that could really screw us over, right? Because if you don't know your own value, nobody else will. So you get slotted in something that's maybe not quite you. So you're working on something that's not in alignment with your strengths. And then you suddenly find yourself going, I thought I would love this job, but I freaking hate it. (laughs) Yeah, I hate it. I'm not making a good impression. I'm not making a difference. I'm demoralized. And what happens is people start to think there's something wrong with them. If I have a great meeting with a client or with somebody, and it's a great discussion, and I've spent a lot of time working on it, a big proposal, and I've flown across the country to meet with them. You know when a meeting goes well, and you're kind of high-fiving yourself, and you can see that light bulbs have gone off for them. You've really made a difference in this conversation. And then you fly home, and all of a sudden, the happy bubble bursts because you start talking about logistics, and it sort of distracts from this great thing that you've just accomplished for your team or for someone else. So for example, in my business, one of the ways that I decided to structure my business differently so that I could stop doing the things that felt like quicksand and start doing the things that felt like a wellspring um, is that I don't want the happy bubble to burst. So I stopped doing expense reports because what I was seeing over and over again, I'd have this killer interaction and building a relationship with somebody. And there was a great future in this connection. And Then all of a sudden it turned to where's the receipt for your Cinnabon that you had for dinner? And, you know, wah, wah, (laughs) it just goes down the tube. So shame on you for having Cinnabon for dinner, too. That's just disgusting. (laughs) Well, hey, you know, sometimes you're a business traveler. You got to do what you got to do anyway. Oh, man, no judgments, no judgments. So there are three things that you can do if you're put into a situation in which you have to do something that you hate and that you're not good at, and you know we're not going to play to your advantages, there are three things you can do. First thing, you can partner with somebody for whom that is their advantage. I know that acting in a very predictable way with meticulous follow-through, checking every single box, going through the spreadsheets, I know that for me that's going to be quicksand. I hate it. I'm not good at it. I'm not going to make great relationships by focusing on that. But I can partner with people who are good at that. So finding somebody on your team who has different advantages is a great way to make sure that you don't have to focus on that because the odds are the stuff that you have a huge disadvantage in trying to accomplish those exact areas, if you can partner with somebody who is good in those areas, the odds are that the stuff that you can do brilliantly is exactly the area that they're not going to be good at. So that first thing is partner with somebody. The second thing you can do is outsource it. You know, I'm not good at doing dry cleaning, so I send my stuff to a dry cleaner. In the same way, if I'm not good at making lists of lists of lists, but I hire a virtual assistant, then it's going to be a good investment for me to not focus on those areas. And the third thing that you can do is just delete it. Take it off the table, like I did with expense reports. I knew that that's not going to be an area in which I can shine, so I just took it off the table. We can't always do that in our jobs, but at least for us to know that those are options that we have. You can partner with somebody, you can outsource it, or you can delete it. Perfect. First of all, Jason and I both took this test and I want to show how the results work. And you all out there can take the same test if you go to theartofcharm.com slash hogshead and the code is charm and it's free. And of course, you get the whole breakdown and everything. I mean, Sally won't be calling you on the phone like we're doing right now, but uh, you will see a really detailed breakdown that comes to you on the website as well as in your email. So we took the test. I am the victor. I had mixed feelings about this because I was like, oh, that's cool and it's all good and everything. But I read some of that stuff and I thought, oh, man, it sounds a little bit. There were areas where I kind of wish maybe it wasn't true. I don't necessarily disagree with the results. I just kind of thought, wow, I sound really corporate in a lot of ways with the victor. Did it take a long time when you were doing the assessment? No, it took like five minutes. (laughs) because you have a shorter attention span. When I originally created the assessment about five or six years ago, it was the same algorithm, so it was the same measurement system, but it took 30 minutes and it was 156 questions. And what we saw was it was the exact same answers over and over again that were giving us data that we needed like a focus group. So when you take the assessment, you got an answer that described that you are what's called the victor. Think of that like who your personal brand is at your best because that's how other people see you. Victors are really good at being very achievement-oriented. 
the three adjectives that describe the victor are respected, competitive, and results-oriented. That means when you're working on a project, you don't want to sit there and talk about what you could do. You want to do it. If you're not going to get results, then it's not going to be fulfilling for you. Even when things are difficult, even when it's a struggle, you keep your focus on what you need to do. It's almost like you understand that what you have to do is one, two, three, but your focus is going to be on three instead of on one and two. Let's take a look at how other people would view your results. One of the things to keep in mind as you're doing the assessment and getting your result is it's not about how you see yourself. It's a different perspective. It's how do other people see you at your best? If you look into a regular mirror, you're going to see your flaws, your imperfections. It's easy to feel insecure because you're kind of looking at yourself about what's wrong and what do I need to fix? But instead, right. imagine like this is a mirror where you're not looking in there and seeing what's wrong. You're looking in the mirror and seeing exactly what's right. So before you go into a meeting, if you reread the way in which I am most likely to succeed in this meeting is by tapping into these unique differences that I have. And your unique differences, I describe that as the victor, meaning for you, it's really important for you to accomplish something. You're very comfortable having big goals. You like to, you like to dig in and focus on being ambitious, kind of pushing people outside of their comfort zone, getting people to push to a higher level. That's kind of what you do through Art of Charm right? You help people see what are they already doing? How do they do more of what they're already doing right? So they can push to higher goals and better results. Would you agree? Yeah, of course. I mean, that's at the core of what we do here. Yeah. So when you take the fascination advantage assessment, the report gives you adjectives that you can use. These adjectives are really, really important because these adjectives are almost like the focus group. So I'll give you an example. I mentioned before, one of the first clients I ever worked on was Nike. Nike's mission statement is to empower the athlete in all of us. The adjective that describes who Nike is as a brand that consumers are most likely to respond to is the word empowering. That's the adjective. When I worked mm -hmm. on Mini Cooper, it was the adjective that describes how Mini Cooper is different than other cars in the category like Fiat or smart cars is participatory. People love to participate with the Mini and they love to go on road trips. So now let's take that and apply that to people. An adjective, I'm going to give you three adjectives, Jordan, for you to take a look at. I want to ask you which one of these adjectives best describes how you are different. Are you ready for your three adjectives? Sure. Okay. First one is respected. People respect you for the results you achieve. So respected. The next one is competitive. You have a healthy competitive streak. You're very comfortable in a situation in which there are a lot of other people who do what you do, but you know how to stand out. The third one is results-oriented. You don't want to hold people's hand. You don't want to kind of dilly-dally by having mediocre results. So your three adjectives to choose from for your archetype from the assessment are respected, competitive, and results-oriented. Of those three, which one best describes how you're different than other people? Jeez, I mean, they all sound kind of generic in a lot of ways. Well, let's specialize a little bit. Pick one off the top of your head. I don't know, respected, I guess. A lot of people are results oriented. Too many people are competitive. I don't see that as an advantage at all either. So I'm kind of like, ugh. I guess respected is the, the positive one out of all those. Um, what's an example of a time when you want to win the moment, an occasion, a scenario in which you want to go in and you want to be as influential as possible? Say when I'm speaking on stage, perhaps to a group of people, entrepreneurs, students, something like that, or a company. So what if I said to you, hey, Jordan, don't push people too hard when you're doing this presentation. You're going to walk on stage, just kind of keep it low key, you know, encourage people to do what they're already doing and to not push for the next level. Yeah, I would just completely ignore your advice. I would not listen to you at all. Yeah. Now, on the other hand, what if I said, listen, we got to push people to have bigger results, better results, better ideas, faster. We want to help every person in this room see what they can possibly accomplish for 2017 and have a better outcome for everybody, including themselves. How would that feel for you? Yeah, that would be great because I would just go, great, I was going to do that anyway. Thanks for the advice. <laughs> so, Okay, so now what if I said to you, when you're describing why you should be doing this speech or how you can be empowering people, these students or entrepreneurs, one of the differences that you have from other speakers or other people who could potentially be doing this presentation is that you are going to help push them to the next level. Even if you don't use the word respected, that that's a positioning, that what your presentation is going to do, that the outcome of that is that you're going to help people understand why they are respected. You're going to help them have more respected results. So the word respected isn't just applying to you. It's applying to what their own result is going to be. There are a lot of people who aren't focused on giving other people respected results. 
You know, there are a lot of other people who just want to be entertaining. I'm a professional full-time speaker. Um, I'm in the Speaker Hall of Fame. So what that means is that I spend a lot of time watching other speakers. And some of them are just trying to be funny. Some of them are just trying to be inspirational. Some of them are just giving practical information. So it's not their goal to be respected. It's not their goal to help other people get respected results. So it is a differentiator for you in focusing on help other people become more respected. If you said to people, by the time I finish this presentation, you are going to respect yourself more, but you're also going to be able to get more respected results. Yeah, this makes sense. It's not just I need to be respected or something like that. It's I want to help other people achieve that same thing. Yeah. You know, it's easy for us to take a look at what we're already doing and think, well, that's what everybody does. But the reality is there are a lot of things that we're already doing without realizing it that are our specialty, you know, where we're delivering a really specific benefit. My dad's a retired orthopedic surgeon, and all he did was correct spines while he was practicing. He helped people who were having trouble walking straighten their back. He wasn't delivering babies. He wasn't doing internal medicine. All he did was spines. And so as a result, he could really over-deliver in that area. It was something that not only gave him great joy, but he could get incredible outcomes for people. In the same way, when we look at ourselves objectively, what is the way that we can make the biggest difference for the people that we're talking to, whether it's an audience or a friend? And we find ways to intentionally do that. You find the projects that allow you to do more of that specialty. As a point of difference for me, if I were going into an audience and help people get the same kind of outcome as you, I'm less likely to be as distinct in their mind. On the other hand, if the adjectives that describe me are fascinating communication. How can I help other people become more fascinating so that they have more influence? They can be more captivating. They can get that definition of fascinating that we were talking about earlier, to bewitch or hold captive so your listener is powerless to resist. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. And AJ, you don't have to just sell your stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from the brands that you love, giving your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no-excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. Yes, these sorts of qualities, they can come across as a little bit of like loaded language or buzzwordy. And I wanna make sure that everybody who takes the test isn't just getting confused or thrown off by that, because even as I was thrown off by the fact that it's not just about the words that you apply to yourself, it's about how you apply these same concepts to other people as well. And I think, is it usual, is it normal for people to be uncomfortable with the results of this test a little bit? Another way of looking at it is not just uncomfortable, but unfamiliar. It feels kind of weird to see yourself the way other people see you. It's easy to feel self-conscious or like, is it vain for me to see how other people see me? But the key is we're not just measuring how other people see you. We're measuring why they fall in love with you, why they evangelize for you. Why do people listen to the art of charm? 
they become part of these advocates that you have. So it's how are people most likely to fall in love with you and your message, not just who you are every single moment of the day. When you're in that zone and you're playing your A game, how are you being perceived by others? And that can be tough to swallow. I mean, for me, like I said, I just wasn't super comfortable with it. Jason got what I think is kind of a neater result than me. What did you get, Jason? I'm the avant-garde, and see, I love my results. I think they were so spot on that I'm just like, yeah, that's me. I dig it. I'm in. Yeah, you have a clearer self-concept than I do. Absolutely. No, it's it says that I'm a, I'm a forward-thinking and enterprising leader. My creativity makes me an excellent contributor to brainstorming sessions, which is true. I always practice planned serendipity. I'm always reading things. I'm very well-rounded, so I use that to use my ideas to be more creative and things to see, like, the connections between two things. And I think a lot of this really kind of nailed it with who I am and what I like to do. One of the cool things about avant-garde's is they have really high standards and they're creative. So it's not just about being creative for the sake of being creative. It's about being creative in ways that are going to move things forward. Do you find, Jason, you have a short attention span? Absolutely. Yeah. So avant-garde's are always looking at what's next and they get really uncomfortable when the people around them just want to repeat what's been done before. So the situations where you're going to be most uncomfortable is when somebody says, hey, let's go back and um, see what we did last year and then just repeat some of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ain't, ain't nobody got time for that. Yeah, ain't nobody got time for that. Well, an avant-garde doesn't, but there are other archetypes that do. There are archetypes like the mediator. The mediator is all about how do we connect people so everybody's happy and everybody has the chance to move forward, but it's not about necessarily pushing to find out what's next. So some of my primary personality descriptors were things like rapidly earned respect. We kind of covered that focus on adding value through better execution, conscientious of smallest details. I think maybe the reason that I wasn't super crazy about this is it sort of sounds like what I was doing as a lawyer because there was nothing mentioned about creativity, nothing like that. So it was kind of a bummer. You said examples of leaders who used particular prestige quality, James Bond, Gordon Ramsay, and Princess Di, kind of a nice spread there. It just seemed like it was maybe a little bit one-dimensional. Well, and that's where it becomes your responsibility to see how can you add in other experiences that you have and other ways that you're applying the other five advantages. So we talked about prestige and we talked about power. Prestige is the language of excellence. Power is the language of confidence. But you probably also score high in innovation, which is something that Jason and I share. We both have secondary innovation. You don't want to be doing the same thing over and over again and being predictable. So there are some situations where you probably want to ramp up that creativity and you probably want to ramp up your passion or your trust or your mystique or any of the other advantages. But you don't want to be all things to all people. You don't want to water it down so you don't have a specialty. Right. Yeah, I can't be Princess Jordan 007 for everybody. That's right. <laughs> right. Jordan, have you ever had one of those times where you have to describe yourself? And it just feels awkward, you know, like your LinkedIn I bio. It. I ha had my friend Clay Bear teach me this six word intro because Jen, my fiance, she said something a few months ago. She goes, whenever people ask you what your show's about or what you do, you always do the same thing, which is you have this weird look, you change the answer every time, you start wringing your hands sometimes depending on the circumstances or who's asking. And I was like, I know, because I just don't have a great cookie cutter elevator pitch that works for everything. I can elevator pitch the business, but when it comes down to me, it was like, oh, uh, well, you know, this and that. And it sounds wishy-washy and not confident, which is unlike the rest of the ways that I represent Art of Charm. So I had to fix that, and it took a while. Yeah, and you know, we were talking a little bit ago about when you don't feel confident, other people don't feel confident in you. So it's really important for you to kind of make it strategic. How do you have a system for feeling confident? Being able to have that language is so important. It's just like a brand has a tagline. When I was working on the BMW account, do you remember the longstanding BMW tagline? They had it for years. Uh, no, I don't. The ultimate driving machine. BMW is the ultimate driving machine. So let's just take that as an example. You can see that if BMW says who we are at our core, at our best, is the ultimate driving machine, then it's really easy for you to see what their showroom's going to be like, what their engines are going to be like, who their customer is, who they're going to hire as employees. And that's what a tagline does. It's like a positioning. And everybody can understand that from the customers, the partners, the people in the team, and certainly the marketing department. 
On the other hand, I was part of the team that launched the Mini Cooper when it came from the UK to the United States. Mini Cooper had a huge disadvantage because people in the United States didn't know the car. It was, it was radically small at the time. This was during a period of time when the Hummer was really popular. So having a car that small, it was just for a lot of people, it was weird. And it was right during the time when VW was relaunching the Beetle. This is about eight or 10 years ago. Mini Cooper only had 10% of the budget of the VW Beetle. So everybody thought it was just going to be a big flop. One of the key things that Mini Cooper learned was men don't buy women's products, but women will buy products targeted to men. So one of the big mistakes the VW Beetle made was they targeted it to men and women, whereas the Mini Cooper just targeted it to men and thereby got the male and female audience. So it was really important how the Mini Cooper got positioned. And the tagline that Mini Cooper came up with is, let's motor. Ultimate driving machine tells you exactly who BMW is. BMW owns Mini Cooper, but they use Let's Motor as a way to differentiate itself. So in the same way, let's talk about you and your tagline and your elevator pitch. If you just pull the words of what you have in your report and you apply it to that introduction or the LinkedIn profile that's going to describe who you are, then it becomes a lot easier for you to have something that you can repeat and know that you can feel confident in it. Victors exceed expectations and they have high standards. They play to win. They get frustrated when other people don't. So imagine if you were to pull words from that, like, I help you play to win by exceeding expectations and being more of what you already do at your best. Is that something that might resonate for you? I think so. I think I just view that a lot of the whole play to win as almost a fault. So again, yes, I know it's how other people see me. But yeah, so it rings true. Yes. But do I like it? Not necessarily. How's that? Well, and that's going to be the important thing for you to be able to customize. You don't want to have a formula. You know, you don't want to follow the same formulas that other people are following, but you can have a starting base. So imagine if you're looking at the report as a way for you to kind of pick and choose where I'm giving you a few words that aren't necessarily you're going to plagiarize from what I wrote. The point is for you to be able to have a North Star, like a strategic brief so that you can see here's the direction that I need to go in. I need people to know that I'm going to help them raise standards or become more respected in their in their arena. Jason says that's you to a T. Absolutely. It, it is so you to a T. And I think one of your greatest strengths, because we would not be here today if you did not have that magical superpower. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I get flustered when I have to write one of those one sentence descriptions. Who are you in one sentence on your website when you have to write your about section? You're writing a bio. You know, how do other people see me at my best? If all you have are the basic building blocks for you to be able to describe who you are and who you're not, it's easy to kind of build on that. I've written two New York Times bestsellers, and I still struggle when I have to do that exercise. And that's why it's become so much easier if I can just kind of have five words that I can build on, and that lights the way to what I need to write. Jason, what did you think of your particular results and description? Did it resonate with you? And were you like, hell yeah? I mean, it seems like you liked it, but did you disagree or not like anything that cropped up for you? Because I found that I was a little bit uncomfortable with the results, which is one of the reasons they were so enlightening, but you just seem stoked with it. You seem like you're like, oh, great, I love it, bye, right? I mean, where are you at? I think one of the things that really isn't me is uh, it talks about my leadership style, and I have led you know multiple teams over the years because I was always the bridge between technology and design, and I would be the one that the board always talked to to keep those teams together. My management style was... Oh, I got to manage. Sucks. <laughs> you know, I'm not a good manager and I don't look forward to it. And my style was, I got to do this today. So I did it. But, you know, the management style that was in my in my report was a little bit more glowing than I think that I actually am, because I don't think I am the greatest leader of peoples. But, you know, I got the job done, but it's not something that I really look to as one of my core skills. Everybody is a different kind of leader. There's not one right way to lead. And if we try to copy somebody else's leadership style, then well, that's a drag. Avant-garde's lead in an entrepreneurial way. So it's not hand-holding, it's not warm and fuzzy, but it's very much about how do we do it? I think acerbic is how people would say my leadership style is. Yeah, it's, it's a lot more untraditional. It's kind of uh, like leading through brainstorming, looking at the options, thinking about how can we creatively solve the problem and do it really well, but do it really quickly. Because remember, you have a short attention span. You don't want to look at how things have been done. And that's a leadership style that's really effective for entrepreneurial organizations. Gesundheit. <laughs> Bless you. That, that was saying, don't sneeze at your leadership style in your report. Oh, God. I can't believe I just said that. 
<laughs> yeah, we're leaving that in there now. That's you it's now. Totally that cheesy now. pun gal. Like I said, copywriting background. Wow, you just can't turn it off. That's great. Um, <laughs> but look, I think that there's so much insight to this particular test. The fact that I had like a visceral reaction to slash against some of these different results was really enlightening. And I mean, I can't disagree with most of this, which is kind of scary because I thought about it and I looked at it and I thought, okay, is this just one of those tests that gives a bunch of generic results that everyone's gonna agree with? Like a cold read where it's like, you're very well liked and everyone's like, oh yeah, that's totally me, right? It wasn't that because there's a lot of stuff in here that I think a lot of people won't like, then they have to think about it and they go, okay, fine, you know, that's me, I'll sort of begrudgingly accept that. And that has more to do, like you said, with the way that other people see them versus the way they see themselves. So it doesn't really matter if you agree because it could be accurate despite that, especially since we're not always the greatest gauge of how other people see us in the first place. Yeah, yeah, that's well said. The point isn't to give you information that you already know. The point is to shine a new light on the ways in which you're going to succeed. Let's talk about it in the context like of dating for a minute. We've talked a lot about the workplace. One of the coolest date nights that you can do is you take the assessment and the person that you're seeing or that you're interested in going out with takes the assessment and you trade results and you talk about like the ways in which you see that in each other. I met my husband in online dating, by the way, and um, um, we both score really, really high in innovation. My husband's archetype is named the Maverick Leader. So he's really big picture. He hates getting in the weeds. He doesn't like to manage details. We have a problem, though, that he's so good at the big picture and so hating managing the details of his life that he always loses his car keys. And that's really common with people who have primary innovation. They don't like to keep track of stuff. So I could resent him for that. Or I can simply have eight pairs of car keys <laughs> lying around the house. And that's something that when you're attracted to somebody and you're really compatible, when you can recognize the way in which you're going to be most likely to have resonance with them, you know, to have one of those conversations where you're both just totally in sync really helps build the relationship. So I know with my husband, we're going to have the best kind of date. If I'm really creative, very spontaneous, I don't tell him exactly what we're going to do. I build in a lot of element of excitement and surprise, whereas for a lot of people, that would be super uncomfortable. If you're dating somebody or even interested in somebody who has primary trust, which is all about predictability, or alert, which is all about details, they're probably not going to respond as well to you being spontaneous and having a surprise. They probably want to set up the date pretty far in advance. They want to kind of know what they're going to do. They want to have a schedule. So they sort of understand it. And that's fine, but that's not how I would do it. So understanding how other people want to communicate with you makes it a lot easier to have a successful relationship and kind of fall in love with each other like we were talking about before. This has been really fascinating. I Well, no pun intended. I wish we had more time to really digest and shred Jason as well. I mean, it's I guess I'm the whipping boy on this one for the most part. But is there anything else you want to convey to the AOC family before we uh, wrap up here? Yeah, one of the coolest things that you can do is show somebody else who they are at their best. It's a great thing to do at a dinner party or if you have a buddy who's kind of struggling at a point in his career or even just putting it out on Facebook. And so a gift that we want to be able to give to this audience, the folks who've been listening here, is that they can share the assessment that we're giving to them now because it creates real conversations. You know, too often we have conversations that are just kind of recycling. It's, it's the equivalent of elevator talk or talking about the weather. So helping people see themselves in a new way is pretty cool. Like the conversation that we were having, not just try to play to win, but to understand the ways in which they're different so they can unlearn boring. People don't have to learn how to be fascinating. They just have to unlearn boring. Sally, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. <laughs> well, I'm so glad. Now, did you pay attention past the nine second attention span limit? I don't think so, no. I did, you know, it's funny because I, I do have that attention span issue. It is tough, I'm always fighting that. Sally, thank you so much, it's been super interesting. Remember, everybody, you can take the test as well at theartofcharm.com slash hogshead one word, and the code is charm, as usual. I, I wanna see some people's results for this. I think it's gonna be really interesting. Let me know what you think of your results if you take the test, uh, whether you agree with it and whether it made you uncomfortable, both of which we just found out today are kind of irrelevant, but I'm curious what other people's reactions are to this. And thank you again for your time. It's been super enlightening. Cool, yeah, thanks you guys. 
Great stuff there. Taking this test for me was really enlightening in an uncomfortable way, just in case you couldn't tell from this episode of the show. I highly recommend that you do it. You can check that out once again, theartofcharm.com slash hogshead. Really easy to remember, spell, and the test really does take like five minutes. It took me longer to read the report than it did to take the actual test, and it was very interesting. So a great big thank you to Sally for this one. Her book, Fascinate, will also be linked up in the show notes as well for this episode. If you enjoy this, don't forget to thank Sally on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well. And I'm also on Twitter at The Art of Charm. It's a great way to get in touch with me and Jason. I got articles going out there, insights, other ways to engage with us on the show. And you can tap the screen of your phone if you're playing this on your phone. Show notes should pop up depending on what podcast app you're using. Our boot camps are live program details where we talk and study and show you and drill the crap out of you with all this stuff. Those details, bootcamp.theartofcharm.com. It's really cool to see how people become a part of the AOC family, the growth they experience over the next months and years. It's just really nothing short of amazing. We run them every week, but we sell out a few months in advance. So if you're thinking about it, just get in touch with us. We'll get you some info. You can plan ahead. You can email, call, whatever you need to do to get in touch. We'll get you some stuff right away that you can take a look at. I also want to encourage you to join our AOC challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge. You can also text. If you're here in the States, you can text in. You can text the word charmed, C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444. The challenge is about improving your networking skills, your connection skills, also inspires you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. We'll also email you our fundamentals toolbox. That's what I mentioned earlier on the show. I also do videos with drills and exercises every single week. It's designed to make you a better networker and a better connector. It's also designed to make you a better thinker. That's theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text charmed if you're here in the States to 33444. It's for both guys and girls and you can do it from anywhere in the world. It's all online. So enjoy that and let me know what you think. For full show notes for this and all previous episodes of the show, head on over to theartofcharm.com slash podcast. This episode of The Art of Charm was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor, and the show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead, tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is really a referral to someone else, a recommendation to someone else in person, shared on the web. So stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at theartofcharmpodcast.com.